of God's holy and perfect word, I invite you to open up to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. The book of Ruth, chapter 4, it's in the Old Testament, which is in the, the first part of, of uh, the Bible. Um, you see uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. If you see Judges, Ruth is the next book. If you see one of the Samuels, it's, it's right before that. And so um, those would be the, book, the, the big books that, uh, that they are um, sandwiched. This, this little book is sandwiched in between. We are um, working our way through the book. We have been doing so since September. We're on the home stretch. I have to resist the temptation to rehash the story up to this point because we've been in it for a while now and... Uh, and uh, if you're not familiar with it, I would uh, encourage you to go home after today and, and read through the entire book. It should only take you about 10 minutes or so. Um, and then you can uh, jump on our website or one of our podcast channels and, and catch up on uh, some of the sermons there. And, uh, and you'll be uh, caught up with that. But we are in Ruth chapter 4. Um, we've been... Uh, really, the book of Ruth is, is a story of a progression of faith. It is the idea of what do we do when we are in crisis and how do we move from crisis into flourishing in the, the faith? When, how do we have faith and how do we move forward when our lives seem to crash down all around us? And it leads us to ask the question, how do we flourish in faith even when we don't know what's going to happen? And that's what we're going to be jumping into here in the next couple of weeks, so I don't want to get too, too ahead of myself. And in chapter 4, we are in the very climax of the book. It, it is in the, at the point when there's the most tension going on. Uh, it's the point where if we go one direction, we would be totally disappointed and sad that it doesn't happen in the way that we want it to. And if it went in the other direction, we see a clearing, we see joy. And so whereas last week we, we asked the question, how do we work faith, faithfully towards a turning point in our lives? And, and this week we're going to ask, how then do we move forward after, after that turning point? And so uh, Ruth chapter 4, uh, we read the scripture together. If you're in the English Standard Version, I invite you to read along with uh, the copy in front of you. If not, it'll be on the screen. So here we are in Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Let's, let's read together. Go. Now Boaz...
Father in heaven, we thank you for these great words. We thank you, God, that, um, that you set up a redeemer for Ruth that one day would come from them, the redeemer that would redeem us all. And so, Father, would uh, the words that we uh, hear today and would be the words that we meditate uh, bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we all walk in faith to love and to serve him uh, today, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Well, we're going to get right into it here. Uh, if we want to uh, move forward in faith and love, there are, th- there are three things I think that the text is showing us this morning. And the first is that we need to examine our motives. We need to examine our motives. Uh, if you want a case study of the, the depravity of human uh, selfishness, you don't have to look very far. All you have to do is pull out an old receipt from L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean has perhaps the most liberal return policy of any store that is, that is out there. On a podcast episode of This American Life, they were interviewing people who had not only taken advantage of this, uh, this return policy, but also some of the customer service representatives who had to deal with some of the, the returns that came in here. Now, the return policy officially says this, our guarantee is a handshake a promise that will be fair to each other. So if something's not working or fitting or standing up to its task or lasting as long as you think it should, we'll take it back. So naturally, there are stories of, uh, of the stories are just ripe with examples here. And uh, one man interviewed said that he returned a pair of cross-country ski boots that he had been given as a wedding gift back in 1992. Well, when he and his wife divorced in 2007, he brought it back to L.L. Bean, said that he was not satisfied with his purchase any longer. And so this man then, after 15 years of having and using these boots, walked out of L.L. Bean with a brand new pair of ski boots. Um, There was... uh, There was another man who uh, had bought a camping backpack to use while he uh, did a trail maintenance job for, for a summer. And he absolutely lived out of that backpack for three months and brought it back three months later after deciding it wasn't roomy enough for him. Um, so he brought it to the return desk. And, not, and, and it didn't matter that it had bug dope all over it or that it was stuck with pine tar all on the back, or that there were dead bugs that were all over the back of it, nor that there were pine needles that were stuck to it, nor did it matter if there was the foul stench of his back sweat from working in the woods in the summer for three months. He went to the customer service desk and said he was not satisfied because it was not big enough, and that man walked out of L.O. Bean that day with a brand new backpack for his job. One customer service representative told the story of how one older gentleman brought in two T-shirts that were a bit worn out. And when she asked him how long he had had these T-shirts, he said, for 40 years. They did not hold up to the standard that he thought they should hold up to. So even with the wear and tear, here's a man that had these T-shirts for 40 years. 
And guess what, folks? He walked out with two brand new T-shirts that day. There are so many stories that I, that, I could, that I could tell you. People of returning dog collars after their dog had died. Uh, people of returning ski equipment immediately after ski season. People returning turkey hunting equipment after turkey hunting season. People returning backpacks after the school year was over. And so on. L.L. Bean's return policy is a reflection of how many of us think. Whether it's things or whether it's relationships, or whether it's situations. We want the newest, we want the best, and the minute that it no longer works for us, the minute that we're not happy anymore, uh, the minute that our subjective viewpoint says that we're not satisfied, we want to return it and exchange it for something better. We just want to get rid of it and move on to something that will work for us. Now, Boaz here is sitting at the city gate uh, in the early morning. It's the place where the elders, who are the leaders of the city, would gather together and they would uh, adjudicate civil matters. And not only would they adjudicate civil matters, but they would also ratify the buying and selling of property. He is sitting there with these elders as well as this, this other guy who has the first dibs on uh, redeeming the land that Naomi's uh, deceased husband owned. And in verse 3, Boaz works as a skilled real estate agent. Um, in the way that he makes his presentation to this guy. And we'll see uh, how he does that here in, in just a moment. But for now, look with me in verse 3. It says, Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Bide in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it. And, after, and I come after you. Now put, this, put yourself in, in this man's position here for just a moment. Boaz is informing him that he has the opportunity to buy really, really good farmland for very, very cheap. Boaz has not yet mentioned Ruth. Uh, and so in this, mind, in this man's mind, he... Uh, he sees the purchase of this field as bringing in higher profits, as over the years bringing in him, uh, riches and being, having a more prestigious position within the community. He knows that the small amount of money that he is going to pay for this field will be made up very, very quickly. And within a year or two, he's going to make up for it and he's going to be in a serious profit here. Further, since he's not aware of the fine print yet, he sees this land as an opportunity for his heritage, his own children, to have more land in which they can have an inheritance. And so obviously, um, the richer he gets, the more prominent that he'll be in the community, and the more that he can invest his own name and his own line in the, in the generation's to come. So to him, this deal here is a slam dunk. So he sticks out his hand ready to shake and says, I will redeem this land. And then Boaz lays out the fine print. 
Look with me in verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy it, the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now, when the man hears this, immediately he flips over to the back side of the receipt. And he starts seeing the return policy of how can he get rid of this deal. He is not satisfied with this potential purchase because he realizes that if he makes this deal, if he goes through on this purchase, yes, he will gain some assets. But he also sees very costly liabilities. Because by acquiring this land, not only would he acquire Ruth and be responsible for her, but he's also going to acquire and be responsible for Naomi as well. And though the land would would bring more profits to him, he would have two more mouths to feed. When you have two more mouths to feed, that's more money that you're going to have to shell out. Though he would have uh, work to do, he would have two other people that he would need to care for. And quite honestly, Naomi is no spring chicken. And so he knows the, the work of care that is going to come is going to be increasingly difficult. And further, if he acquires Ruth, he knows that because she is childless, he is going to bear the responsibility of having children with her, and those children would acquire the land after his death, not in his name, but in Elimelech's name. It's going to affect his inheritance. So he walks up to the customer service desk and at his local L.L. Bean and responds in verse 6. I can not redeem this, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for, for I, I can't do this. This isn't, I, this isn't a good deal. So this man, who's totally unnamed, we don't have a clue what his name is. He uh, was driven by greed. He, in this initial offer, saw dollar signs in his eyes. And when the deal looked sweet, he wanted it. But when responsibility was also put on the table, he balked. How many of us want the sweet deals of life, but then when responsibility is added to it, we want to bail. I am convinced that many of us do not see God working in big ways in our lives because we want the good things from God, but we are not willing to accept the responsibilities that come with that, or the sacrifices that come with that. We want to make our spiritual purchases at our spiritual L.L. Bean, but when people get too needy, when the stress is too hard, when life gets messy, or things don't work out how we envisioned it to work out, We want to simply exchange it for something that we think will be better. Something that we think will bring us more happiness. Folks, when we live like that, 
we will never find joy. We will never live in peace. We will miss God's purpose for our lives because you will spend the bulk of your time waiting in the return line, not even realizing that God's goodness often comes from the hard work of pressing on during those difficult days of life. And further, we will continue going back to the store and back to the store, continuing to return and buy and return and buy something better in life, only to be continually let down, knowing that nothing will satisfy us except the goodness that God has given to us. And oftentimes that comes in working hard. And you'll never learn to love well because you only see love temporally and subjectively. So examine your motives. If they're not right, confess it to God and repent. Ask Him to change your heart Because of Christ's selfless love on the cross, he can change your selfish motives into loving actions. He can make you like Boaz, who did not exercise selfishness like this unnamed man, but he exercised selflessness in extraordinary wisdom. And that leads us right into our second point, is that we need to... uh, Exercise wisdom. Exercise wisdom. One of my favorite scenes from J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Fellowship of the Ring, uh, comes fairly soon in, uh, in the book. Um, there's a huge birthday party going on for Frodo Baggins and Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo is turning 111 years old. And near the end of the party, Bilbo goes in front of the whole town to thank them for coming and to, uh, and to appreciate them uh, and acknowledge them. And as he is dra- addressing them, he totally takes advantage of their lack of intellectual power. And he says this, Alas, 111 years is far too short a time to live among such excellent and admirable hobbits. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. (laughs) And Tolkien uh, observes that there was a dead silence from the crowd, and they gazed at each other, blank-faced, trying to figure out if they were insulted or not. It was Bilbo's attempt at a shrewd way to both compliment those that he wanted to compliment and then insult those that he wanted to insult with getting away with it. Well, Boaz might... Um, might not be entering into the situation here in chapter 4 in order to insult this other man. But he is certainly uh, coming to it with a very shrewd plan to use this man's guilt, uh, not to use his guilt, but to use his lust for money and power against him. Uh, Ruth leaves the threshing floor in chapter 3, and uh, very early in the morning, Boaz gets up, he makes his way to the city gate, because he knows that this man's going to be coming around uh, soon. He takes his seat. Sure enough, this guy shows up. Uh, now, most English translations don't uh, pick up on the, the idiosyncrasy. Uh, boy, I'm losing my... Uh, thank you. Uh, about uh, how Boaz patronizes this guy. 
and strings them along from the, from the first words here. Now, the ESV in verse 1 says that uh, Boaz says to the man, Hey, come here, friend. Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. A more accurate translation of that would be Mr. So-and-so. Leaves him completely anonymous. Hey, Mr. So-and-so, buddy, old boy, old pal, why don't you come on and come and sit here. Do I have a deal for you? And so the man knew what happens at the city gate. So he, he takes the bait. He sits down. Elders show up. Boaz invites them to sit down. And then he presents the case. Naomi, she needs money. She's got land. She's selling Elimelech's land. And notice here that Boaz doesn't even tell him that Malan and Chilean's property is also for sale here. Uh, that, that's just more fine print. And again, because of this man's lust for money and his, his lust for, for possessions and, and, and for power, Again, he takes the bait. And look at how Boaz uh, carefully crafts this arrangement. He waits until after the man initially agrees before entering in the details. Oh, by the way, you do this deal, you also get Naomi and you also get Ruth. Why did he do that? Because he knew that if they could agree on a certain price that legally this man was locked into that price. So regardless of the fine print, the fine details that were going to come, he couldn't back out of this. If this man knew that both Ruth and Naomi were part of this deal, he could have negotiated a lot lower price because he's getting a, uh, a liability along with the land. He could not counteroffer. So uh, Boaz here is working as a very cunning Salesman. And so the question that we need to ask then is was the way that Boaz went about this fair and godly? Was Boaz sinfully manipulating the situation in order to get what he wants to get? I have to be careful here um, because. It would, be very to mis, uh, it would be easy to misunderstand what's going on here in order to justify um, sinful shrewdness. And I think there's a difference between sinful shrewdness and righteous shrewdness. I'm going to argue here that I think that Boaz here is, is executing very careful, wise, biblical shrewdness. And here's why. First, it's clear that Boaz has absolutely no interest in money. He's got enough land. He's already known to be one of the richer guys in Bethlehem. Money is not a concern of his. Second, he's not interested in prestige. He wants to marry a foreign woman. If anything, he is going to lose a little bit of his reputation here. But yet he's willing to go into it. His sole purpose and his sole intention is in doing what is right. He loves Ruth. He's already shown that he is willing and very able to provide for her and to protect her. And uh, he wants her to be taken care of for the rest of his life. He also knows his family very well. And he knows this clown of a cousin of his, or whatever relation he is, is selfish and greedy. Boaz knows his character. 
he knows that if this man redeems uh, the land and Ruth, he has no intrinsic, uh, he finds Ruth not intrinsically valuable. He has no interest in her. She would be the byproduct or the sideshow to what he's doing, viewing the more important work of the farm. And so out of love and protection, Boaz totally makes this guy play the fool. And he's using his wisdom and his shrewdness to make a great display of love for a woman who otherwise would have been just kicked to the curb. So this Mr. So-and-so, he exemplifies the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world says, take what you can get right now. Everything. Live it up now. Do whatever it is that makes you happy, you feel satisfied, you have purpose, and if that doesn't make you happy, get rid of it and go find something else. But God says such wisdom is utterly foolish. It's a foolish way to think. Now, Boaz shows the example of the wisdom of God here. His purpose, his life's direction is not in himself. It is in displaying sacrificial love. Here's a guy who enjoyed local popularity, wealth, and glory. And he stands in front of the most important people of the town telling everyone that can hear that he is willing to lose everything for a poor, widowed foreigner. And just like Boaz, Jesus left his glory and his riches and his fame in heaven to come down and suffer and die in the place of us sinful foreigners. When his arms were stretched out on the cross, he was the fulfillment of Boaz, who by essence says, you are witnesses this day that by my blood... I have purchased the penalty for the sins of my people. I have bought them all. Word, thought, and deed. I take upon myself. Their debt is now my debt. And by this purchase, I have not only made them my bride, but I have also put their names on the deed of my own inheritance. I have bought them that they may not be cut off from my father in judgment, but that their name may be perpetuated in his book throughout eternity. So how do we exercise wisdom then? We exercise it firstly by abandoning the wisdom of the world. By stop looking for the next greatest and the next best thing. 
And it is embracing the wisdom of God, namely Jesus Christ, who bore the penalty on our behalf. And then it's thinking deeply and acting on how we ought to live in light of what Christ has done for us. It is to always seek then, once we have placed our trust in him, to do what is right, to live wisely and shrewdly for his name, regardless of the cost. So we ought to exercise wisdom. And finally, we ought to engage in Christian community. Now notice the encouragement of this particular community. In chapter 3, verse 11, Boaz said, All of my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So when Ruth and Boaz are on the threshing floor, they're talking, and Boaz then says, Everybody knows you're a great woman. Everybody knows that you're hardworking, you're good-natured, and that you are a worthy woman. So Ruth already has this reputation within the town. And then these town people, who are the same people that Boaz goes to church with, they pray for Boaz as he goes about marrying Ruth. They said in verse 11, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Now, this, the, this prayer is incredibly biblical, but it's also quite interesting. Because why would they pray that God would make Ruth like Rachel and Leah? They're certainly important figures and were the foundation of Israel. But these women were like Ruth once, once barren, completely childless. And then they were blessed with children who became the foundation of the Israelite people. And so not only would they pray that God would make them like Ruth, uh, make Ruth like them as matriarchs of um, God's purposes in Israel, but they pray something more profound even in verse 12. Look with me. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now that is, frankly, a weird prayer. Because if you know the story of Judah and Tamar, it's, it's a story of, uh, well, let me tell you about the story. Uh, Judah was once one of the sons of Jacob. And he had three sons. And the first son married Tamar. Now, Tamar, like Ruth, was a foreign woman. She was undoubtedly a Canaanite, uh, a Canaanite woman. And she marries Judah's son, and he dies, much like Ruth's husband, Chilion. So Judah made sure that his second son stepped up to the plate in the same way that Boaz is trying to do in our story. But his second son loved the pleasure of sex more than he did his obligation to raise up children on behalf of his brother, 
and prevented pregnancy from happening. And he died. So Judah then went and promised Tamar that when his third son became old enough, then he would give her his third son in order to have children to be raised up for her first husband. Well, the, the oldest uh, son grows up. Judah does not give her his youngest son. Perhaps he's fearful, whatever the case is, doesn't give her the son. Tamar takes it upon herself to say, the Lord has given me provision to have family through this, uh, have children through this family. So she dresses herself up like a prostitute. She knows where Judah is going to go. She presents herself to Judah as a prostitute. He does not know it's her. He pays for her services, puts some collateral down, sleeps with her, and then she becomes pregnant. He finds out that she's pregnant. Again, doesn't know that he slept with her. He thought it was just some cult prostitute. He wants her stoned and killed because she's obviously done something, well, immoral. He's trying to save his own skin here, too. She presents the collateral that he gave her for the payment that he was supposed to make. And he is outed in front of the whole community. He is, he is caught. He's red-handed. And he repents in front of the entire community that this is what he did. And then he is going to make right on what he did. The children in her womb were twins, Zerah and Perez. Perez would be the, the head of the leading family in Judah who would eventually make up the kingly line in Israel. Boaz is a direct descendant of Perez. So this prayer from this encouraging community is that, like Judah and Tamar, God would do an amazing thing out of a tragic circumstance. And in this one, to bring Boaz and Ruth together. And it's a prayer that would um, continue to bring about Judah's line. And here's the thing. The prayer would come full circle, not in their lifetime, but well after they are gone, which we're going to talk about here in just a couple weeks. Because though they began the family that brought about David, Israel's greatest king, they started a family which would eventually uh, brought about a man named Joseph into the world who would take his betrothed pregnant wife, Mary, down to Bethlehem in the very city that Ruth and Boaz are here together in to be registered for the birth of a greater king, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't always know the ways of the Lord. But we do know that God created us for community a community that goes through life together, a community that one person's joys are everybody's joys, a community that one person's sorrow is everybody's sorrow, a community that serves each other and prays the Lord's goodness on each other. Now, this is pure speculation. This is not 
taken out of the immediate context, but here's my speculation. What would have happened if this community did not pray for Boaz and Ruth? Is it possible that God not only brought about Jesus through the faithfulness of these two individuals, but also the care and the support of the community that they were surrounded with? Friends, what, what joy and what blessings are we missing when we neglect to be the community that God has called us to be? What amazing things are we not seeing from God because we don't pray for each other? What things are we missing, uh, that are we missing because we're um, not getting into each other's lives and asking the hard questions of how can we grow in godliness together? What extraordinary things are we missing out in not only our individual lives, but also the life of our church? So resolve today to plug in deeply in the lives of those that God has brought together in the community of Christ. Be vulnerable with each other. And for those that enter into your life, Excuse me. Be bold and compassionate as you enter into the lives of others. So if we want to move forward, we want to thrive, we must engage in Christian community. So from tragedy to flourishing, that's the book of Ruth. And as we continue to move through the progression of faith, We can move forward by examining our motives, by exercising wisdom, and engaging in Christian community. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this word that you have given to us. Lord, there's so much in such a tiny book here. But Lord, all of us are a work in progress. And so, Father, would you help us to progress more today? Would you help us to see the value of loving each other the way that you have called us to? Would you help us exercise wisdom? Lord, would you help us grow in faith? Lord, if there's there's people here, Lord, that don't know you, that this all just seems strange and odd, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them the risen Christ and that they would see, God, that you are holy and, Lord, that we fall short of what you have called us to be. But, Lord, would you create in them a heart of faith that cries out and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, Father, would you create new life here today. And Lord, would you then, through that, help us all to examine motives, help us all to exercise wisdom and move forward together as a collective body. And it's in Christ's name that I ask this.
Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing in response to the Lord?